Greetings to all of you. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. It has been a while since I have given a message, and as shown on my site at loverealize.com, the reason is because I am at a point where a lot of time is being used to set up a business on the internet marketing particular products. If the Lord so pleases to bring provision more immediately and quickly to do his work, of course, I would love that to happen. But that is the reason why for a season I haven't been doing a lot of messages on a weekly basis. But I want you to be assured that I am more determined than ever to continue and to do what I am doing, to not neglect the gift of God that God has put within me, but to stir it up all the more so. For those of you that are new, I just want to briefly make you aware of how I will be sharing this message. I am seeking to do what the Word of God commands in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. It says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We are to seek to allow God to be speaking out of us the words that are coming from God and not from ourselves. That they might minister that which will impact a person's life in a powerful way. Our own words are pretty shallow and they don't make a lot of impact even if they're titillating intellectually or interesting. The fruit comes when our, the very essence of who we are is being touched by the very creative word of God. As Christ said, the words that I speak are spirit and life. And so I will seek to speak in such a way that I allow myself to be carried beyond my words to bring forth the words that are coming out of the utterance of the Holy Spirit. This is basically the spirit of prophecy. We should be ministering the word of God out of the spirit of prophecy. What is the spirit of prophecy? Well, in Revelations 19, when the angel stood before John, and John was prostrate before the angel, the angel said unto him, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus is testified to out of the spirit of prophecy. The reality of who God is manifested to you personally and to this world comes when that word comes forth by the spirit of God. And through the Spirit of God, it is out of a conscious state of worship, that is a worship, that the Spirit of prophecy comes forth. And so I will seek to enter into a conscious state of worship while I am speaking, so that the Word of God will prevail to impact your life personally 
and to impact what God would be saying to the body of Christ around the world. I, to facilitate this, I do cast lots on the Word of God on a daily basis. There are a few days where, for, because of circumstances, I can't do that. But Normally, I do cast lots on the Word of God, where there's an equal chance for it to be in any particular chapter. And then I meditate in that chapter for a half an hour and make some brief notes also within that half hour. Now, because I haven't been doing this for a while, I have a lot of passages here. Two weeks of passages and more, actually, if I went all the way back to the last time. So I'm just going to trust that the brief notes that I've made from these daily meditations, God will use. I don't have anything prepared or know what I'm going to share, because I am trusting that God, by His Spirit, will speak to the body of Christ. But I do believe in picking a theme passage, and this time, whether God uses this as the theme passage or not, I know not. But the theme passage I picked is the first scripture passage that is the farthest back, way back on May the 5th, which is Luke chapter 7. And it might be good to also mention the one I just got yesterday, which is John chapter 4, which is basically on reaping the harvest. And that's another passage, John chapter 4. So briefly, I want to share with you from particularly Luke chapter 7. But I want to do a brief overview of the various passages. It may not be possible to do all of them because there's so many. But I want to do a brief overview of the various passages of Scripture that I've received as to what God is saying to me personally and to the corporate body of Christ in this particular hour. Luke 7, on May the 5th, is a tremendous passage that reveals what the real quality of faith is. It is first about the centurion that many of us are familiar with who said he was unworthy even for Christ to come to his home to heal his servant. But then as this passage unfolds, we see various pictures of what real faith is that expand upon the faith that this centurion had. And also it describes how important wisdom is. Genuine faith does birth wisdom because genuine faith is birthed out of a genuine fear of God. And it is the genuine fear of God that brings forth wisdom. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that is basically what is covered in this passage. Wisdom looks at the heart motive and intent and does not judge according to outward appearance. Those that do not know an intimate relationship with God cannot hear the voice of God because they do not have genuine faith. Genuine faith comes because of the fear of God and it allows for us to be able to hear God. As it says in Galatians, He that works miracles among you, how does he do it? 
He does it by the hearing of faith. But you cannot have genuine faith unless you first have been genuinely born of the Spirit of God. And a person cannot be genuinely born of the Spirit of God if they have not first chosen to genuinely fear God. And so that is what is the basic thing that is brought forth in this chapter. And so I just make a brief overview of that at this particular time. And this will be the passage that I will go into and in depth, Lord willing, as the theme passage. Now on May the 7th, I received Luke 22. And this is about the prophecy that was given that very detailed description of the atoning work of Yeshua HaMashiach on the cross, prophesied by the Holy Spirit through that prophet, King David. And in this particular passage, what stood out to me this particular time was the various words that were being used that again involve a description of faith, except this description of faith is the relationship of the Messiah in his union as the one true God, in, as the Son in union with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, particularly in this case with the Father. And this is a misunderstanding that many people have that has resulted, I believe, in teachings that are false doctrines. There was never a time when God was manifest in the flesh in Jesus Christ when he ceased to be God. He did not cease to be God when he was forsaken, as it were, the Father upon the cross. He said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He had total trust in the Father, though he experienced the full judgment of God upon him and the forsaking of the presence of God, his soul, his being, was in a state of selfless trust in the Father, not a clenched fist of bitterness saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was not a why of mistrust. This was a why of something that was beyond the mind to comprehend and fully grasp in a human state. It was a why that had even faith in it. And I'm sure many of us have found ourselves as believers in trials and asked why, why God would you allow this in my life? It doesn't mean when we say why that we're not still trusting God and believing God. It is a way of releasing burden that is pent up within the soul. It is a why of release, and even a why of release that contains faith. So when Christ was in the, on the cross, he was always in oneness with the Father, in a state of selfless trust. His soul was never defiled with a spirit of rebellion or bitterness. He didn't become, as some false teachers teach, Satan. 
Did he become sin for us who knew no sin? Yes, the word of God makes it clear that he did. But this is in the sense that he took sin upon himself, as it says in Isaiah 53, that he bore, he bore the sin. He absorbed it. But it did not mean that in the absorbing of it, that he was conformed to the nature of Satan, as some false teachers say, for then he would not be God. And his union with God would have been broken. No, God was manifest in the flesh, and he was always God in the flesh, in that state of selfless trust. His soul did not have any impurity in it. It was because of that reason that he could take that judgment and that sin upon himself and, as it were, become sin for us and yet still be pure because his purity was greater than the sin that he was absorbing, which is why he rose from the dead and which is the reason why in Romans 1.4 it says that he rose from the dead by the spirit of holiness. His spirit, his soul was holy. He was in a state of selfless trust that was not defiled with mistrust for the spirit of rebellion in the midst of the greatest contradiction, far greater than any of us mere creatures have ever experienced. Can you imagine that? Can you comprehend a love so great for you personally? And for this world that he might have a corporate bride, that he, as the creator of the universe could be so great that he could condescend in that high, totally perfect quality of being that is God and that can only contain ultimate power and omniscience without being corrupted by power and omniscience and without it being dissipated because the quality of his being is so pure in the integrity of love that it will not tolerate sin. That is the holiness of God. And therefore can be entrusted with ultimate power. And it was so great that he suffered more than you, a mere creature. God so loved you and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature. And when we see how great God's love is for us, when we deserve the judgment of God, we likewise will find ourselves being broken of a state that is like a clenched fist in self-worship and defiance against God because of the requirement of his holiness that requires the consequences of judgment. And we see all the suffering in this world and it is easy when we see it to blame God and to begin to have that fist of rebellion and saying, God, why have you allowed this? Why have you allowed that? And why is this happening in my life? What does the word of God say? It says, lean not unto your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. That means through trials. That means through the wilderness of confusion where it goes beyond our understanding. 
As it says in the word of God, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Was that Job that said that? And Jeremiah, I believe they were both the ones. And did they go through trials? Their faith was tried through the fire, but they were purified and their faith was enlarged. And they came out into a wealthy place. And likewise did Christ, because he never broke his union with the Father, because he is God manifest in the flesh. He was God in the full quality of the being of God and therefore totally God in equality with God. Elohim is the Almighty's one. The Father is that aspect of the one true God in personage that is transcendent beyond time and space, that sees the end from the beginning that is the originator of all things. The Son is the expression of that one true God into the time and space realm which he has created. The word Son basically means expression. The word Word means basically expression, and Jesus Christ is called the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit is the omnipresence of God's Spirit and creativity that can be creative and active everywhere at the same time, and that is attached to every particle of existence, that is able to bring, raise the dead, that has intelligence attached, total omniscience attached to every particle that he has created, and is able to reverse things and bring back the dead in his appointed time. And so we have one true God and three aspects of government, which are the ultimate aspects of existence. That is beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. The Father beyond time and space. The Son, the full expression of God into time and space to communicate with creation that he has created and to have creation focused in worship on his personage onto the Father and the Holy Spirit filling all things in his creative work that carries the Father and the Son in omnipresence. And so here we have in Psalms 22 our chief example, which is the Creator himself, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And there are various meanings, and I'm not here to get into that because I'm trying to do an overview. I find it very difficult without getting into preaching a lot. So then we come to May the 9th. And on May the 9th, I just have the passage, it was Jeremiah 30. And Jeremiah 30, again, is about genuine faith and exposes the difference between a mere religiosity of self-righteousness that purports to have faith and that which is genuine faith. We are living in a day and age when there are many so-called faith teachers. Some of them may be good. I am not God, I am not their judge. But I do know there are many that teach a faith which is not a genuine faith. The Word of God says that God wants us to have a faith that is on fame, that is, that is genuine, that is pure. 
Genuine faith is not faith in our ability to have belief out of ourselves. It is a moral persuasion in who God is that is not mental, but a heart knowledge of persuasion that is expressed with our soul exercised outward towards God in acts that reveal a trust in God that is beyond any of our own understanding and self-sufficiency. A trust that stretches us beyond our own comfort zones to do and obey God out of a moral persuasion. I'm not here to get into learning all about those words, but Jeremiah 30 has a few key verses in it that I believe are important. The first one is in 37 that says, For the Egyptians shall help in vain, and to no purpose therefore have I cried concerning this, their strength is to sit still. And one of the secrets of genuine faith is that we do not self-initiate out of ourselves anything. As Christ said, I only do, do those things that I see the Father do. And he said, if you don't believe in me, believe the works that you might believe that it's the Father in me doing the works. He says, I do nothing of mine own self but I only do that that I see the Father do. And one of the secrets of entering into such a relationship with God is learning to wait on God. That means to curb back our tendencies to be presumptuous in irreverence before God, irreverent before God, and to go ahead and do our own thing, or to utter our own presumptuous words, as it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Be not hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven, and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. Isaiah 30, verse 10, is also a very significant passage of Scripture. And it says here, which say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things. Speak unto us smooth things, prophesy deceits. And at that time, Israel was very religious, and they had their prophets, but they always prophesied what they wanted to hear. And then in verse 15 we read, For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, and in returning and rest shall ye be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength, and ye would not. And ye would not. So here again we see that the reason the nation of Israel went into such severe judgment was because they'd never learned to return out of faith to God and be able to rest in who God is. To be still, to not panic, to trust Him, to know He will come through always. It's so easy to look at the sufficiencies of our own ways, of our own resources, 
And it's an ongoing process to learn the difference between being responsible with what God has given us and on the other hand, being presumptuous and trusting in our own self-sufficiency. Then we come to May the 10th and it's Exodus 24. And this is a passage about Moses going up with the elders, and with 70 of the elders, and including Aaron, Nahab, and Abihu. And it says in Exodus 24, verse 9 to 11, this, Then went up Moses and Aaron and Nahab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, as it were the body of heaven in his clearness. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also they saw God and did eat and drink. Now in this same passage, in Exodus 24, we read in verse 15 and 18 the following. And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up into the mount. And Moses was in the mount forty days and forty nights. So here we have a scene where Moses can go right into the midst of the Shekinah glory of God, and he's not consumed. And yet as Israel views it from afar off, they are terrified because what they are seeing is a very powerful, consuming, devouring, what appears to be a devouring flame. There are those that do not know God in a very righteous way. And I wrote here in the notes, the Lord will not allow praying righteous people very close to his presence that do not know him with great reverence in the fear of God in a deep, intimate relationship. I'm talking about people that are righteous and that pray a lot. They won't be allowed to be close into the presence of God. For example, Nadab and Abihu, later were physically killed by the presence of God because they offered strange fire. They became presumptuous before God because they were allowed to see Elohim at a distance and the paving under his feet and even to eat and drink. There was a presumption that came. Now, I just happened to hear a tremendous message by a man of God I look up to, who is a prophet called Henry Gruber, who is one of the few that really lives it out and has laid down his life on the line. And he was mentioning something that... Um, at the moment is skipping my mind, but it will come back in a moment. 
but he was mentioning about how important it is to hear the voice of God and to be led by the Spirit of God. Not to be presumptuous. So he, it's quite an amazing story. He, he goes, um, he is led by God to go to Siberia to a very cold place. And at his age, it was very difficult. And he's out there in the cold. He's wondering, he doesn't see anything happening. He's wondering why God led him there. And without going into detail, he, um, you can watch the video if you look up Henry Groover, two, March 2016, I believe that's when that went up there under the video section. But he, um, he's there, and then God speaks to him to go to this building, and then a bus pulls up, and out of the bus comes a soldier. He's, he gives, he has thousands of these little scripture booklets in Russian to give out. He gives it to this man, and this man starts being very rough with him and saying, how dare you come to our country and give us scriptures and so on. And to make a long story short, he continues to be rough. He says, oh, I could believe in God too if I had everything you had in your country. But then basically what happens is Henry Groover says, well, you, if you really want to know this, God, just turn the next page. If you were really sincere, pray the prayer and see if you don't meet God. Pray the prayer that's in the next page. So he says, okay, I'll sincerely pray it. He sincerely prays it and experiences being converted. It turns out he's a top general. This top general then takes the bus and brings a load of 45 soldiers. They're lined up in a row and all given books by his command. Then they're commanded to pray that prayer. They start getting converted and they start weeping and sobbing. He then gets another truck, a busload of 45, and another busload, and this is going on and on. Then he brings big helicopters in to bring more of the men in. And this goes on and on and on. And many of them are weeping and sobbing. They're finding God. And he says, now our whole army has God in us. And it'll probably be the army used to judge the United States if they do not repent of their corruption, if the church does not repent of the corruption that they've allowed. Drunken with the gods of amusement and materialism. Oh, I pray that God has mercy, that our land turns back to the Lord. But here is the thing. Nadab and Abihu were presumptuous before God. And what the thing that I wanted now that comes to my mind that I wanted to bring out, and I probably wouldn't have told you about all that happened uh, through Henry Gruber, unless I had forgotten it, but now it's come to my mind. Henry Gruber mentioned that one of the people he led to the Lord in this message was powerfully used of God. There were powerful healings in his ministry and so on. Then he saw many years later, and his healing ministry was no longer effective and no one had wanted him. And Henry said, why is it that God's not using you anymore and that you're not moving in the gift of healing and so on? And the brother said, the reason is because I became proud. And I began to think it was all because I was so good before God. And he said, when that happened, it all went. So here again is what happened to Nadab and Abihu. And it came out of pride 
that presumption comes forth to assume things that God has not given us. The secret to being in intimacy with God and not falling prey to the danger of pride is the learning to grow in the fear of God. It is essential. That is why it says, I've forgotten exactly where it is in Isaiah. It might be around Isaiah 12 or something. Or it might be Isaiah 15 around verse 13. But there's a verse there that says, concerning the Messiah, it's very clear it's talking about the Messiah in the context. And it says, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. Because the Messiah, Yeshua, he treasures the fear of God. In fact, it's one of the seven spirits that's mentioned in Isaiah that would rest upon him. The spirit of the fear of the Lord. It is seven spirits that are described in the um, Septuagint version, and it's not—it's—it's it's different in the uh, King James. But the Septuagint is very accurate as far as that goes with that particular verse, as it points out seven spirits, and one of them is the fear of God. Now, the fear of the Lord is something that I teach in depth on. I'm writing a book on that's very in-depth, and I'm not worried if it takes 10 years to finish it. I just do a little bit here and there. But here's the thing about the fear of God. The fear of God is a choice to rightly recognize God for who he really is. Instead of to choose an image of God that is our own self-projected image out of our own selfish delusions or self-deceived delusions. And that recognition of God is a recognition, first of all, of, his, of the quality of his being of love and its integrity, which is the holiness of God. The integrity of God's love is as a consuming fire that will devour everything that is contrary to the love of God in the slightest. That way there is no corruption in the being of God. His love is so pure that it does not tolerate corruption. Our God is a consuming fire of love in his integrity and purity that will not tolerate corruption. That's why he can so easily break out his fire and devour as he did the children of Israel. In this case, they were not devoured. And they stood still afar off, but they were allowed to see the manifestation of the Messiah. Not directly, but indirectly. Just the pavement and so on. But here's what I'm wanting to point out here. The fear of God, when we recognize the holiness of God, which is that first aspect of the being of God's love and its integrity, We no longer are in rebellion against all the suffering in our own lives and the suffering in the world and saying, why God in a rebellious way? Our pride is broken. We are in prostration before God and recognize we deserve the judgment of God, that we deserve hell. We recognize in the light of who God is how far we fall short. And our pride is broken because our spirit can no longer worship our soul when we see how wrong our soul is before God, apart from God. And when that pride is broken as a seed, the shell of a seed is broken, 
then the next thing that can happen is we can have the awareness out of that of how good God is. We cannot really know God is ultimately good unless we first know that he is ultimately holy. For only holiness will not tolerate corruption. And if there is corruption, there is no longer genuine love that is pure and that can contain everlasting life. And so when we see our undoneness before the holiness of God, we're also seeing behind his holiness how great his trustworthiness is because there's no corruption in him. His love is so pure. And so when we realize that, we realize that he must be a God of mercy. Mercy that is transcendent out of this holiness without violating the holiness of God or the integrity of his love. And I can't go into it, but basically we recognize the atoning work that only God can save us and that only he could be a perfect atoning sacrifice. That was revealed to Enoch. That was revealed to Abraham. It is the normal conclusion when you have the genuine fear of God that brings you into the recognition of who God really is. It brings genuine birth. And they experienced being born again of the Spirit. Christ expected Nicodemus to know it before he died on the cross. He expected that spiritual leaders should know what it meant to be born of the Spirit. Oh, I could go into all the details of the difference between the time before Christ and after Christ as far as being born of the Spirit. I'll say that the secret is in the verse that says, concerning the disciples before the atoning work of Christ, Christ said to them, For ye know him, for he dwells with you, but shall be in you. The soul and the spirit was not able to be cleansed before the atoning work of Christ. Therefore the Spirit of God dwelt with our spirit, and as our faith and our soul opened up as a selfless hand of trust in what was recognized as ultimately trustworthy, which is the goodness of God that springs out of the holiness of God in mercy then the Spirit of God comes to dwell with our soul as a one open hand coming against another open hand so that the hand stays open in a new nature. But that's here, neither here nor there. The issue I am talking about here that is important to recognize is the danger of not entering into the genuine fear of God and growing in it so that presumption enters into our life and counterfeit faith. Today, the world is filled with a with counterfeit revival, counterfeit conversions, and counterfeit faith that is not genuine. And is not what the scripture clearly reveals genuine faith is. And we have many teachers that are false teachers that are denying that God came in the flesh and conquered death and sin in the flesh. And need I say more about that? May we be those that have the genuine faith that does not end up being filled with pride because the secret is to treasure the fear of God as the Messiah does. The fear of the, the fear of the, as it says in Isaiah there, the fear of the Lord. Lord is his treasure. We, by having the fear of God, are always kept in the place of 
total brokenness and humility before God. We are kept in the place of total honesty before God and awareness that we are nothing of ourselves, that all things are of him and to him and through him. Paul himself said that he was the least. He was aware of his undoneness and unworthiness before God apart from the grace of God. I go on in this passage of scripture to the next uh, passage of scripture, which was Psalm 21. Now, I'm not going to go into this a lot here. It's just not time to go into all these things. I'll just read the verse in Psalm 21 that stood out to me. His glory is great in thy salvation. Honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him. For thou hast made him most blessed forever. Thou hast made him exceeding glad with thy countenance. For the king trusteth in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. And you can use that word mercy in the Hebrew to also mean grace, because the understanding of the word mercy in Hebrew contains the meaning of the word grace that is brought forth in two different words in the New Testament. That's what I found in my study. No time to go into it at this point. Maybe this message will just be a skimming over the various passages of Scripture. Then we, I did do um, Galatians 1 that same day. I felt I wanted more than one passage to fill up the half hour. And so in Galatians 1, I said this, We have been called into the grace of Christ, which means we do not trust or put confidence in our own strength to be righteous before God by performance of keeping the law or anything else out of our own self-sufficiency to make us acceptable to God. What we trust is where we put worth, worship, and glory. And this is not in ourselves, but in the genuine fear of God, which births awareness of total dependence upon God. Then on May the 12th, I received Hebrews 13. And this is, uh, I've wrote a bit longer on this particular passage, so I tend to not want to uh, just read it. It has a lot of exhortations and commands here. So I'll start reading the first paragraph here. We are to have brotherly love, and love that extends beyond, the, beyond to also entertain strangers with hospitality. This love will remember those that are imprisoned as in prison with them, and those that are suffering adversity in the body being aware that in the body we could also be experiencing such adversity. This does not mean it is wrong to experience physical fulfillment, because marriage is honorable. And, the other, and on the other hand, those that are whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Our conversation and lifestyle should be without covetousness. And we should be content with the things that we have recognized that God is our help, that we do not have to fear what man can do to us because we don't have enough money or special protection. So I'm just basically expounding the various exhortations, which was a whole list of exhortations that Paul the Apostle gave to them.
We are to remember those who are spiritual leaders over us and follow in the same lifestyle of faith, considering the wonderful end of their lifestyle into the kingdom of God. Remember that Jesus Christ is our supreme example and never changes. Because in this passage it says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. From eternity past to the present and into the future. We should therefore be consistent in our walk of faith as Christ who never changes. Our heart therefore needs to be established in the grace of God and not in the performance of animal sacrifices and the meats therewith that bring no profit spiritually to those that are occupied therewith. We need to bear the reproach of Christ, even as Christ himself did by suffering without the spiritual city that had been corrupted with counterfeit religious practice. That's Hebrews 13. Many practical examples there of the difference again between genuine faith and those that are merely doing performance. On Saturday, I received, I, May the 14th, I received Isaiah 61. And there's some verses here I want to read in Isaiah 61. Verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. It is those that mourn in the body of Christ that shall be given beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. These will be called the generations of righteousness, and those whom the Lord has planted. It is these in the body of Christ that will restore what has been lost in the body of Christ. They will also restore the body of Christ in individuals that have been made desolate. They will cause cities of light and refuge to come forth in desolate places. As this happens in the body of Christ, it will be paralleled in the physical in the nation of Israel. The glory of God will be such on these that everyone that sees them will see the glory of God on them, and thus recognize that they are blessed of God. These shall greatly rejoice in the Lord and will be clothed with the robe of salvation and the garment of joy. They will have a spiritual crown with adorning jewels that is evident to all, a crown of life. Likewise will praise spring forth unto the Lord from them in all the earth, so that the earth itself becomes likewise clothed with the glory of the Lord at his return. So this is a very prophetic passage. And we see in this passage that the ones that God gives the garments of joy and praise to are the ones that have experienced mourning and have experienced going through the trials. As it says in God's word, Buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and anoint thine eyes with eye salt, that thou mayest see. For as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, saith the Lord. We are to make a choice to let Christ be the potter and us the clay. 
We are to pray the prayer, Lord, I'd rather go through suffering with you and not have things that I want in this life and be your servant that can be used of you. So please do take me as clay and allow me to go through the trials that I need so that you can make me a vessel unto honor and praise. That's what it means. It means to choose to take up the cross daily and deny ourselves. And that also cannot be done unless we have the genuine fear of God. For if we try to do that out of our own self-sufficiency, it is mere religious performance. Even attempting to take up the cross and deny ourselves. Those that boast that they're forsaking all and talk down to others are probably the ones that are the most deceived in, and fallen short of the glory of God. It is not until we learn a dependency on God out of the fear of God that we begin to have a revelation of the treasure that's buried in the field. And when we see that, for the joy of what we see, we will endure all. It is then worth it all. It is then that we can count the cost. But if we are in our self-sufficiency saying, Lord, to, in front of everyone else and before God, and being presumptuous to be so quick to say, God, I forsake all for you. We have never been brought into the genuine fear of God that is not presumptuous, or we have a very small measure of the fear of God. To be so presumptuous and self-confident before God and before others with even a motive of self-glory. May we be those that in all humility yield our lives to God out of a dependency of recognizing who God is in the beauty of his holiness and in the glory of his grace, that it is transcendent out of that foundation that everlasting foundation of the integrity of his love that is a consuming fire of love. God is calling us as his people to return to the genuine fear of God. There's so much counterfeit revival. There's all these people, they want to jump and they want to dance. I dance. I have moved in the spirit and danced beautifully before God. I love to dance. But when people are having meetings and all they know all the time is joy and all they know all the time is dancing and they know not what it is to rend their hearts with brokenness and humility before God, to weep and to mourn, blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that weep now for they shall have great. What are the what is the Beatitudes about? It is about having a right foundation and that foundation is in the fear of God and is manifested in what is seen in the Beatitudes of Christ. The genuine circumcision of the heart out of the genuine recognition of the holiness or the integrity of God's love. The bursts Genuine trust because we see what is ultimately trustworthy, which is the perfection of the being of God that can provide eternal life and contain unlimited power and life and ever-enlarging fulfillment and creativity that ever goes on. 
because his being is holy and is able to be transcendent in the fact that he himself is our salvation because he himself is our perfect atoning sacrifice. The only one as God that could live a perfect life facing all temptation and yet not fall into sin, even on the cross, in a state of selfless trust. And so by the spirit of holiness, as it mentions in Romans 1, 4, he was rose. He rose from the dead. And we also that mourn and that are put through trials because we choose to be purified and judged now rather than with the world later, will rise with the garments of joy and praise. And even in our own lives now, we will experience out of the trials that we allow God to put us through, the resurrection of his workings and of fruitfulness in our lives. And God is calling us to be those that as the world becomes darker and darker, begin to radiate the presence of God so that it becomes evident, as it does in this passage, where they say in this passage that I'm talking about now in Isaiah 61, People will come to them and say, we recognize that God is with you. Would you take me to God? Christ prayed that prayer in John 17, that we would enter such a oneness with God and with each other, that the glory of God would fill the meetings, that the glory of Shekinah glory of God would be around us as we go throughout the world, as it becomes darker and filled with despair. As it says in Isaiah 60, gross darkness shall cover the peoples, but the glory of the Lord shall rise upon you. The next passage I received was on Monday, May the 16th, and it was Philippians 3. And it says this in verses 1 to 3. Now, I don't have the actual passage in front of me right now, but I could very well go and just quickly turn to Philippians chapter uh, 3 right now. So I will go in my thing here to Philippians chapter 3. As we come to a close, so it looks like I won't be expounding any particular. I'd love to have gone into Luke 7. It's so powerful what I could share from that passage. But here in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, we read the following. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers, beware of the concision, for we are the, the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Jesus Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. We are to be aware of those that are dividers. That's what it means by the concision or by dogs. Dogs has the symbol of being those that divide, that bark over Issues because of the pride and the deception of pride that is in their heart. Those that are evil workers, those that mutilate, that is hurt and wound others spiritually, including themselves. We are to beware of these. For we are what? We are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and in truth which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. 
My heart is burdened for people that I don't see the genuine fruits of the Spirit in. When I see that they have no respect for others, and they claim to be Christians, and they even claim to pray a lot, and yet they turn around and treat believers instead of with love, with disrespect, and they're hurtful, even when those believers try to love them and to help them. I get very burden for their soul because I believe they could be one of those as it says many shall come to me and say have we not done all these wonderful works and Christ will say to them depart from me for I never knew you I fear for those that believe they've been genuinely converted to Christ and yet give no evidence of genuine conversion because they've never been brought to a place where their pride has been broken where they've had genuine reverence for God. If they did, they would have genuine reverence and respect for others. If they had the genuine love of Christ within them and saw what they were forgiven from, they would receive Christ as others, as Christ received us, as the Word of God says, receive ye one another as Christ received you as sinners. We are to love one another, to have a fervent love. We should be practicing even literally washing one another's feet. But we should be doing it out of a pure heart of love in assembly. And when we are with our brothers and sisters, encouraging one another, as it were, washing one another's feet out of the love of God with the word of God's grace that has been implanted in our lives. That is the evidence of genuine conversion. And the last part of Philippians 3 basically is saying this, knowing Jesus Christ is worth the loss of all things. And indeed, compared to that, all things such as reputation, achievements, is dung in comparison. Rather, may we be found in Jesus Christ by faith that is not in ourselves, but that comes out of trusting in the mercy and grace of God's love in Jesus Christ, so that our righteousness is of God out of such a relationship. Forget your failures of the past and reach toward the prize, which is to enter the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And lastly, this message, which now is just over an hour, which I will soon close, I want to share from John chapter 4, which I received on Wednesday yesterday. I'm not going to share a lot on this. This is just a summation of things that God has been saying by the Spirit. In this passage, it is about the woman at the well. And how Christ goes to this woman at the well. And this what happens is the disciples later on come back and they see him with this woman and they're amazed that he would even talk to a woman that looked like probably a harlot. But here Christ was seeking to reach this one who was trying to fill the void in her life through relationships with men. And so when he exposes to her that he knows all about her, she runs to bring a multitude, and they hear the message of the good news of Christ, and many of them, it says, believed. In other words, they were converted.
passage, in this passage, when the disciples wanted to give him food, Christ said to them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me while it is day. And he emphasizes the fact that there's not much time and we shouldn't procrastinate because the harvest is already ripe. There are souls like this woman that are ready to be reached, that are ready to be birthed anew. I told you about the soldiers in Russia that Brother Henry Groover was led to minister to. It resulted in multitudes of these soldiers being converted to Christ. And that man that is the chief general there later on built a Bible school and even came to the United States and still was trying to find Henry Groover to, that led him to the Lord. I believe he must have already must have found him. Well, that is all true. And God is calling us to be in such a relationship with him today that we can go forth into this world and have such a sensitivity that we will say the simple things that Henry Groover said to the soldier and the simple things that Christ said to this woman that were so wise and profound that drew her into the saving knowledge of Christ. May we be those as the body of Christ that begin to manifest forth his glory and also his good works. Because we repent and we turn to God with all our heart. We repent of loving the world and the gods of pleasure, of sports that rob us from prayer, of materialism that focus our time so we no longer pray and seek the Lord. May we be those that rise up and trust God to meet our needs, to do his work, which is what I am seeking to do right now. Thank you for listening to this message, and may God bless you all.